Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Taking Sustainability Literally. So, my name is Mark McElroy, and uh, with me is Jeff Gowdy. Um, I'm with the Center for Sustainable Organizations, which is a small nonprofit in Vermont, about 10 years old, and uh, we've been doing research and development and consulting around this thing called context-based sustainability, um, which we argue uh, is uh, a, a, a necessary approach to sustainability management if what you have in mind is to take sustainability literally. Uh, I'm also a co-founder of uh, another venture called Thomas and McElroy, which uh, late last year released a new implementation of context-based sustainability called the Multi-Capital Scorecard, which I'm going to tell you about later after we uh, sort of get through the, uh, the basics of what context-based sustainability is. And I'll also, for the sake of brevity, be referring to it simply as CBS. Um, and uh, Jeff, do you want to just say a little, a little bit about yourself? Yeah. I'm Jeff Dowdy. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And my company is Jay Gowdy Consulting, so it's me and a small network of affiliate consultants. I teach at the Business School of Vanderbilt, so Vanderbilt and here at Sloan. Um, and I also work with Andrew Winston on Pivot Goals, which is my part of this presentation. So it'll be looking at the global Fortune 500's publicly available sustainability goals and then overlaying a filter related to science and ethics and context to show how many of the Fortune 500's goals actually meet thresholds and how many don't. A hint for those that are going to sneak out early from this window. But please stay. Yeah, we're going to be, this, this is the new metrics conference, so we're going to be heavy on metrics uh, in short order, so bear with us while we get there. Um, this is the agenda we have in mind and how we're going to split this up. We're going to spend the first hour uh, basically walking you through the basics of context-based sustainability, um, the high points, if you will, um, the most important uh, principles. And um, then we have a mandatory break at 2.30, uh, and then when we get back, um, I'll continue uh, by uh, explaining to you, sharing with you the multi-capital scorecard, what that is uh, as an implementation of context-based sustainability. And there's going to be a, a plenary tomorrow that I'm doing jointly with uh, Rob Mahalik on the same topic. Uh, Rob is the, the Global Director of Social Mission at Ben & Jerry's, which has been piloting the multi-capital scorecard over the past few months. So it'll be interesting, uh, I think, for all of us to hear what he has to say. Then we'll turn things over to Jeff at precisely 3.40. And um, uh, Jeff, Jeff will then uh, walk us through an exercise where we'll be trying to put um, the ideas that we will have covered up, up to that point um, to, to use, using some uh, real uh, sustainability goals and metrics that uh, Jeff and Andrew Winston have been uh, pulling from sustainability reports um, from 
hundreds of companies. Um, okay, so let's jump into context-based sustainability. Um, first question, obviously, is what is it? Um, so the answer I like to give is that, first of all, uh, you should think of it as a, uh, a particular approach to sustainability management or a, a management doctrine, if you will, um, that um, in effect competes with others for attention in, in the marketplace right now. And I think uh, arguably with um, growing success uh, over time, but we'll, we'll see. Um, but you could uh, think of it as being uh, an alternative to say other sort of mainstream doc doctrines like eco-efficiency, uh, corporate social responsibility in the social only sense. Shared value is another uh, uh, doctrine that uh, speaks to uh, uh, financial or shareholder primacy in ways that also support uh, social or environmental goals or, or objectives that, that uh, may overlap with the pursuit of profits, if you will. Citizenship is another term uh, that was coined uh, primarily by GE and sort of uh, 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 you know, was descriptive of, of their general approach to sustainability management. So context-based sustainability is a relatively new uh, doctrine that competes with these otherwise, uh, uh, you know, sort of prevalent uh, doctrines in ways that uh, will become more clear momentarily. What is CSM? Uh, I'm sorry, Corporate Sustainability Management. So that's just a, a kind of an umbrella, broad umbrella term that, that I sometimes use. So, uh, you know, that's kind of the general field that we're all in, presumably, all of you, Corporate Sustainability Management. Um, so what makes it different from all these other things? Well, uh, it's mainly that it takes social, economic, and ecological thresholds in the world explicitly into account, instead of, if you like, ignoring them. Uh, some refer to this uh, also as a science-based approach, but I would argue, and will, as you'll see shortly, that there's more to context-based sustainability simply taking the science-based approach. There are other variables that come into play. Um, so an example of this, a simple example would be, what do, what do I mean by taking these thresholds explicitly into account? <coughs> well, let's say you're a sustainability manager and you're focusing on your company's use of water resources. So instead of simply measuring consumption of water this year and comparing it to, say, consumption of water last year, or say, instead of simply uh, setting a goal for 2020 to reduce water consumption by uh, some percentage, uh, we would actually be comparing the rate of water use to the rate of uh, water supplies in the places where we do business. Um, so we'd be making a direct comparison of our impact on a natural resource with the capacity of that resource to withstand the effect that we're having on it. 
and we would set goals in such a way that we would strive to not exceed the carrying capacity of natural resources, for example, or of natural capital. So that's what we mean in the title to this workshop, Taking Sustainability Literally, that you know, natural resources and other social and economic resources that are important uh, to people um, do not exist in finite supplies. And so we have to take the limitations, limits in the availability of resources that we're having impact on explicitly into account in order to determine whether or not our activities and the effects of our activities are sustainable. Now the other thing about uh, context-based sustainability is that it is triple bottom line in scope. It's not just an environmental sustainability methodology. The same principles apply to uh, social impacts as well as to economic impacts and economic performance. And that incidentally is what the multi-capital scorecard has been designed to do to finally sort of roll this all up into uh, an integrated uh, context-based methodology. So there are three uh, uh, core principles of CBS that I want to focus on uh, just to solidify your understanding of how this works. One is vital capitals. Second is uh, the idea of there being sustainability standards of performance. Uh, and the third um, is uh, context-based metrics. And so like uh, most of the other alternative doctrines that we talked about, context-based sustainability uh, tends to come to the table, if you will, with its own particular approach to measurement and its own uh, style of metrics that we simply call context-based metrics. You'll see what that means shortly. Okay, vital capitals. This is uh, arguably, uh, you know, it's hard to say, maybe the most important uh, uh, sort of differentiator uh, uh, of CBS in the, uh, in the field. Uh, CBS is capital-based. Uh, it is built on the the view that sustainability performance is a function of what, it, what an organization's impacts on vital capitals are. Uh, we've all been hearing lots about natural capital and the connections between natural capital and sustainability. Uh, and by extension, the same principles apply with respect to other capitals, human capital, social capital, constructed or built capital, intellectual capital. And um, the point here is that um, whether or not uh, something or an impact is sustainable uh, is, strictly speaking, a function of what its impacts on one or more vital capitals is. Uh, if you're putting the quality or sufficiency of some natural capital resource, like water, at risk, that's unsustainable by definition. Uh, if you're putting the well-being of uh, people or stakeholders who rely on natural resources for their own well-being at risk, uh, that, according to the same principle, is also unsustainable. So technically, sustainability and unsustainability ties to the effects uh, organizational activities are having on vital capitals. 
Now that, I would argue, is uh, uh, perhaps the least controversial principle in the field of sustainability, certainly in the sustainability literature, um, which is broad and deep and for a long time has been making the connections between sustainability and capital resources in the world uh, and the issue of impacts on capitals as being a, a criterion for whether or not performance or activity is sustainable. We're also seeing the same idea now uh, surfacing very prominently in uh, some of the leading international standards for measurement and reporting, uh, including most notably the, the new uh, integrated reporting standard uh, put out in, I guess it was late uh, last year by the uh, International Integrated Reporting Council. And then the other one uh, is the Global Initiative for Sustainability Ratings, uh, which uh, shortly followed the, uh, the um, integrated reporting uh, standard. And both of them are very uh, explicit in saying, look, in order to do a proper job of measuring, reporting, or rating the sustainability performance of an organization, you have to be focusing on what their impacts on vital capitals are. And here's what the capitals are. And both of them lay that out very clearly in terms of you know, these are the relevant vital capitals that we need to be focusing on. So if we're measuring anything, we should be measuring impacts on vital capitals explicitly. Um, so we're not talking about impacts that we're having or not having on vital capitals. Under this theory, we're not talking about sustainability at all that uh, sort of out of the conversation. Now, um, we have another important standard. Um, you're all familiar, I presume, with the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. It's been around for a long time. Dominant, the leading international standard for measuring the greenhouse gas emissions of organizations. Uh, up until now, that standard has been context-free. Um, uh, nowhere in the standard does it call for greenhouse gas emissions to be measured and reported against ecological thresholds or relative to some ecological standard of performance. It's just, what was your inventory of greenhouse gas emissions? Well, now uh, steps have been taken uh, to uh, augment that protocol with uh, a, what they're referring to as science-based uh, criteria for setting uh, targets or goals for what greenhouse gas reductions would have to be in order to be consistent with the science and ultimately reverse climate change. Uh, and so that's another very significant data point on the, the radar, if you will, of what's happening in the context of sustainability. Uh, this is the, uh, the framework that, uh, in my work anyway, we use as a reference model for what the vital capitals are. Here they are. Uh, and what this graphic also shows you is how they correlate to each of the three bottom lines. And so if we're trying to understand uh, the environmental bottom line or the environmental sustainability performance of an organization, 
we would be looking at its impacts on natural capitals. We wouldn't be looking at its impacts on these other things. They correlate to the other bottom lines. So this is, again, what the multi-capital scorecard has been designed to do, is to create a, is to provide a kind of a systematic, structured way of doing this uh, so that uh, we can actually produce quantitative triple bottom line performance reports for organizations that are capital-based and context-based. Uh, this is just another way of uh, kind of saying the same thing. Um, the point is that we have all these sort of vital capitals in the world, if you will, that people rely on for their well-being. And uh, these capitals uh, support well-being by uh, producing flows of valuable goods and services, sometimes referred to as carrying capacity, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then people, in turn, appropriate or use these goods and services in the service of their own well-being uh, on, on a regular basis. So if we're an organization and we're uh, you know, uh, diminishing the, the quality or sufficiency of these vital capitals or the flows they produce, uh, then the downstream consequences are that it can put human or stakeholder well-being at risk. Uh, as well as the viability of the capitals themselves. Um, so this is, you know, sort of deep sustainability theory, if you will, that we're trying to pull explicitly into play in a way that uh, sustainability managers in an organizational context can, can use. Okay, one of the key, uh, other key concepts of vital capitals is the concept of thresholds. Um, safe to assume that most of you are familiar with the ecological footprint method, or just simply the ecological footprint. This is a, uh, a system that was developed uh, in the early 90s that took uh, what you know, we now see very clearly was a context-based view of the sustainability, not of organizations, but of humanity on Earth. Um, and uh, took an approach whereby, uh, through their research, they were able to compare the, uh, the effects of human activity in terms of consuming natural capital or natural resources uh, to compare that level of consumption uh, with the level of supply on Earth. So on Earth, basically, the resources that we have equal one Earth. <laughs> uh, and uh, through the research that uh, the Global Footprint Network did, it's led by a guy named Mathis walker Nail. They were able to determine that somewhere around uh, 1970, I've heard this date float between 70 and 80, something like that, humanity's consumption of the carrying capacity of natural resources on Earth 
crossed the line. And so, uh, whereas prior to this point, we were uh, you know, operate, operating within the carrying capacity of natural capital on Earth. Um, past this point in time, we began to consume the underlying uh, natural capital itself, and not just the uh, sort of renewable recurring flows of uh, valuable goods and services. And um, uh, so this was a kind of an early uh, illustration of context-based thinking, that we have this thing called a threshold <laughs> that in the case of our impacts on natural resources must not be crossed. Uh, in order for our activities or the effects of those activities to qualify as sustainable. So there's a sustainability threshold. So what we've done in uh, our work on context-based sustainability and the multi-capital sport card is to sort of take the same idea and apply it to all of the various capitals that we're looking at. But these capitals also exist in finite supply. There are thresholds involved. And if we really want to understand, not to mention manage, our sustainability performance, we have to take those thresholds explicitly into account in some way. We can't just sort of sweep them aside. Now here's another more recent illustration of the same idea. Uh, this was, um, I don't know, 2000, there it is, 2009, in an article in uh, Nature. Um, this is uh, often referred to as the planetary boundaries model, uh, developed by Johann Rockström and uh, many others uh, at the uh, Stockholm uh, Resilience Institute. And this is just a, a graphical depiction of, as of uh, 2009 anyway, their view of, of what the uh, human impacts on vital natural resources in the world uh, has been, or is, as of that point in time. With the outer perimeter of this, uh, uh, of this graphic representing uh, sustainability thresholds. Um, and so, for all of the areas of impact like change in land use, uh, uh, global fresh water use, where, where the, the green uh, shading uh, has been indicated uh, illustrates uh, areas of impact uh, where our sort of collective impact globally is still sustainable. But in areas like biodiversity loss and uh, nitrogen cycle and where's climate climate I guess it's this this circle here is the uh, depending on the uh, the wedge if you will is where the thresholds but basically red means we've crossed the threshold green means we're still living within our environmental needs so this was another kind of creative implementation of context-based thinking again expressed at the planetary level uh, tough to do anything with this at the organizational level, but in principle, uh, it's based on the same idea. Then came uh, Oxfam, which took the the Rockstrom notion of planetary boundaries and sort of rendered it in uh, another uh, uh, 
another version where um, they added uh, another dimension uh, to uh, refer to social impacts, the social, the social performance of humanity on Earth. Um, and they uh, created this, what is sometimes referred to as the donut uh, model. And the idea being that the safe and just space for humanity is between these boundaries, okay? Because on the, on the exterior perimeter, you don't want to cross these environmental thresholds uh, because they represent limits in uh, environmental carrying capacity and natural capital. And then with respect to uh, many of these social areas of impact, you actually don't want to go below them. Uh, so this is a not to exceed threshold. This is a not to go below threshold. So depending on you know, which area of impact you're talking about, well, for all of them, according to this representation, you want to be somewhere in this you know, donut zone. Uh, and that's important uh, because uh, it tells us, uh, among other things, that when it comes to environmental impacts, the kinds of thresholds that we should be interested in are not to exceed thresholds. When it comes to social uh, and economic impacts, the kinds of thresholds that we want to be aware of are not to fall below thresholds. And that, in fact, is exactly the logic we use in the context-based uh, metrics and the multi-capital scorecard and all of the work we've been doing in context-based sustainability for organizations in, in a business setting. Uh, just one more thing, why is that? Well, um, natural capital, environmental resources uh, is, uh, you know, exists in essentially in fixed supplies. Uh, it'd be nice to have more water or a, uh, uh, a more robust uh, climate system, uh, but we don't have that. We have to sort of live with what we're, we're given. In the case of some of these other capitals, they are, in fact, for the most part, anthropogenic. If there's not enough of them, we can usually create more of them. More knowledge, more hospitals, more roads, more schools. We don't have unlimited capacity, but the point is they are anthropogenic. Uh, and so in order to be sustainable, if you will, uh, we need to keep up with uh, demand, which means we need to be doing more vital capital production and maintenance as opposed to restraining ourselves in the case of natural capital from capital use or consumption. Okay, uh, I've used this phrase a couple of times. Um, when we, uh, and we do need to do this, if we're gonna take the capital-based approach, we have to have some way of quantifying capitals uh, so that we can assess the effects of our impacts on capital stocks and flows. And uh, it turns out there's a very handy uh, concept for that. It's called carrying capacity. And um, basically, the volume of demand that a supply of capital can support is called its carrying capacity. So if we live in a watershed that on a renewable basis produces just as much water 
per day that uh, 10,000 people need to stay healthy, uh, then carrying capacity of the water resource, which is a form of natural capital in that watershed, is 10,000 people. It's not 20,000 or 30,000, it's 10,000 people. Um, and we can do the same thing with other kinds of capitals, say the non-natural capitals, like social capitals, like hospitals, how many beds uh, does a hospital have, or uh, schools, how many students um, can a school um, support. These are all different ways of expressing carrying capacity of these vital capitals in quantitative and you know, eminently measurable uh, terms. So uh, putting that concept um, in play here, we can say to be sustainable, an organization must not put either the carrying capacities of vital capitals or the well-being of those who depend on them at risk. That's you know, sort of chapter and verse context-based sustainability. Uh, there's an article I just mentioned here uh, that I published a short article last year on green bills that explains all of this uh, if anyone's interested. Carrying capacities of capitals. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to build um, uh, kind of a short glossary of some of the terms we're using as these terms uh, are explained. So first of all, let's just sort of consolidate what we've said here about vital capitals. What are they? They're stocks of natural, human, social, constructed, and economic resources and their flows of goods and services that people rely on for their well-being. So capitals take the form of stocks and flows. The, the sort of academic definition of capital is it's a stock of anything that produces uh, flows of valuable goods or services. All right. Um, Got a question. Sorry. Yeah. May I? You bet. Okay. Uh, so when I think of the vital capital concept, on my mind immediately thinks of resource efficiency and not just limited to uh, natural resources. Yeah. Is that true or false or depends in your mind? Well, I would say uh, loosely speaking, capitals do equate to resources. Yes. So if you were want to use resources, no, no problem with that. Um, and, and, and even when we do, we should distinguish between uh, stocks and flows. Right? So, you know, ideally, to be sustainable, we don't, we want to confine our impacts to the carrying capacities of the flows and not uh, dig into, if you will, the underlying capital stocks. And so, you know, in a sense, you can see this happening out west. Anybody from California or that part of the world? Um, your stocks of water resources take the form of uh, groundwater, or a groundwater component, if you will, the underlying stocks or aquifers. The, the flows um, uh, really have more to do with the um, kind of the rates of, of precipitation. So, the, so if you were consuming, if you were confining your consumption of water resources to flows only in the case of water, you'd literally be focusing only on water flows. You know, um, 
that are renewable, that the renewable rate that ultimately is tied to how much precipitation you actually get every year. That's like a really conservative, context-based uh, way of looking at um, the sustainability of water use, is to confine consumption to the rate of precipitation and don't touch the surface of groundwaters. So, uh, anyway, so resources uh, is just as good. Um, and what was the other part of your question? That was it. I just, yeah. Yeah, oh, the, the efficiency it, I, part I wanted to just comment on. Um, and I really just meant, because there's so much buzz about the terminology of resource efficiency. Is yeah, this just yeah. the same overall concept? Well, this, this could be a problem uh, because um, uh, efficiency. Eco-efficiency, in particular, uh, to say that we are uh, consuming natural resources more efficiently this year than we did last year, or even that we are striving in, 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 in a goal sense to achieve a uh, higher uh, degree of efficiency, is not to say that even if we achieve that higher degree of efficiency our impact will be sustainable. See what I mean? So the risk is that when we, when we use the term efficiency in a sustainability conversation, that we, you know, we're conflating the two in some way, and they're not the same thing. Um, improvements in efficiency can uh, contribute to achievement of sustainability. Certainly that's true, but they are not the same thing. All right. Um, okay, I want to talk a little bit about stakeholders because context-based sustainability is also stakeholder-based. <laughs> um, so this is kind of a, a you know a good illustration of how context-based sustainability may be science-based, but it's many other things as well, including stakeholder-based. Um, so we've already said that. Uh, CBS and sustainability, broadly speaking, is fundamentally about not putting vital capitals or stakeholder or just human or non-human, for that matter, well-being at risk. Um, you can think of corporate sustainability management or just sustainability management as equating to capital impact management. If you're not managing impacts on capitals, you're probably not doing sustainability. So the identity of stakeholders and the duties or obligations owed to them uh, to uh, manage their impacts on vital capitals is really important to uh, context-based sustainability. And one of the reasons it's important is because it helps to put boundaries around it uh, with respect to what the scope of an organization's sustainability program should be. Uh, otherwise, it's too open-ended. And, you know, it's sort of, wait a second, um, when did it become our job to solve all of the world's problems? Surely there's some way of putting boundaries around what should be, and here comes the M word, material uh, to uh, an organization's own sustainability program. So one of the materiality considerations is, and we've talked about this, is what are the vital capitals that you're already having impact on? 
okay, which give rise, therefore, to a responsibility of some kind to manage your impacts. But then another question is, who are your stakeholders? Uh, to whom do you owe uh, duties or obligations to manage your impacts on vital capitals? Uh, either because you're already having impacts on those capitals or because these are stakeholder groups that you have some kind of formal relationship with. And that gives rise to an obligation, like your employees or your customers uh, uh, or the communities uh, or your, your stockholders, your owners. So um, let's then define what we mean by stakeholders. So here's another key term in our glossary. Stakeholder is anyone to whom a duty or obligation is owed by an organization to have, not have, or manage its impacts on vital capitals in ways that can affect their well-being. Now, let's run with that idea uh, into the subject of materiality further. So what is materiality? Uh, it's fundamentally about what the scope of a CSM program and its reports should be. If something isn't material to your organization or to your sustainability performance, then it probably shouldn't be a part of your program. The CBS approach to materiality is capital and stakeholder based in the sense that all impacts on vital capitals owed to formal stakeholders are included, like when I say formal, your employees, your customers, your owners, primarily. All impacts on vital capitals that, that affect the well-being of non-formal stakeholders are also included. You can think of these as sort of natural duties. So if you're a manufacturer and you're consuming um, you, you know, gobs of, of water resources in the places where you do business, um, all of the other people in the same community who rely on those same resources for their well-being just became stakeholders of yours. Okay, they are people uh, to whom uh, an obligation of some kind uh, is, is owed. And that gives rise to another materiality consideration. And, and beyond that, uh, we would take the position that no other impacts are included. Um, so this is uh, meant to be a pretty clear uh, formula for determining what's material um, for an organization. So, um, okay, so I mentioned, I used two terms here, um, duties and obligations. We use the, that phrase a lot in uh, context-based sustainability. A duty is a behavioral norm owed by one, one person or group to another that is independent of any contractual or voluntary commitment. Duties are natural, non-discretionary. If you're going to be consuming half of the water, half of the watershed's uh, uh, water resources, um, you have a duty <laughs> to manage uh, your impacts on those water resources uh, such that um, you're not putting their viability at risk for others. An obligation is slightly different. Um, it's a behavioral norm owed by one person or group to another that arises from a, a contractual or a voluntary commitment. They're self-imposed and, and 
discretionary in this regard. So when you hire somebody, um, that's a, a discretionary act on your part, but the fact that you did it gave rise to uh, a range of obligations, some of which involve uh, impacts on vital capitals uh, that your employees rely on for their well-being, like safe workplace, um, livable wage, um, and other uh, you know, benefits, if you will, that employees rely on rightfully for their, their own well-being. And those things correspond to uh, some of the uh, vital capitals that we talked about. Okay, and then rolling that, all that up into a materiality criterion, an organization's actions or inactions are material if they can do or should have impacts on vital capitals in ways that can affect stakeholder well-being. Now notice here, you know, the term materiality sort of has a, a long history in financial measurement reporting. Uh, the sort of classical definition of materiality uh, from the financial arena is a thing is material if it affects the decisions of a shareholder. So it's very, very narrow. Of course, in sustainability and in context-based sustainability, we're by no means limiting our concern or focus on shareholders. We think in terms of stakeholders, which include shareholders. Um, and we also think in terms of multiple vital capitals, not just financial capital. <laughs> okay, this is, um, uh, this is a, a materiality uh, a template or a tool that you, you could imagine using potentially, where this is a kind of a thought, uh, kind of structures the thought process in terms of de determining what's material by, uh, for example, um, having you, in a very kind of structured way, um, brainstorm around the question of, okay, who are our stakeholders? What, what are the, the groups uh, that we could uh, think of as stakeholders? And also, what are the corresponding areas of impact? In some, in some cases, you start here and you sort of interpret who the stakeholder is. In other cases, you might start here and then interpret the other way around. But in any event, this is the starting point in this thought process, is these two columns. Who are our stakeholders? And what are the specific areas of impact that we either are having or should be having in particular ways that can affect stakeholder well-being? And then, uh, then we're also able to uh, interpret areas of impact in terms of the, the types of capital that they uh, correlate to. And uh, once we've done that, we can assign them to the corresponding uh, bottom lines, the triple bottom line. You can see now we're here well on our way to sort of build, fleshing out a program uh, that will ultimately make it possible for us to measure report, assess, manage our sustainability performance across all aspects of the triple bottom line. And then these last two columns speak to um, the 
process of developing context-based metrics, which we'll get to in a second. So there's just a couple examples up there. We'll later that. Um, another key issue in context-based sustainability is the allocation issue. Um, this is, in some some ways, uh, you know, it's hard to rank them in their importance, but this is this is one of the uh, most important hallmarks of CBS, and also, in in many cases, uh, one of its most controversial aspects. Uh, uh, and that is its assignment of organization-specific allocations of vital capitals to either use or continuously produce or maintain them, uh, such that those assignments are fair and proportionate. And I'll, I'll come back to these in a second, but let me give you the simple example that we've used once or twice already, which is, say, water use. So you're a manufacturer, you've got a major manufacturing plant in a watershed somewhere and uh, you're, you, you want to take a context-based approach to measuring, managing, report, and reporting your water use. And so by definition, you're going to have to not only determine what the thresholds uh, of available renewable water resources in the watershed are, but how much of that quantity of available renewable water can be fairly allocated to you, okay? so that you're only you're only allowing yourself a fair and proportionate share of the available renewable supplies. Right? So the question is, how do you do that? How do you? Uh, I mean, it's one thing, and here in the U.S., for example, it's really easy to calculate the total volume of available renewable water in any watershed anywhere in the country. <laughs> um, the question then becomes, once we've got to that point, that's our threshold, how do we then make a, an organization-specific allocation of that threshold in such a way that if everybody else in the watershed followed the same algorithm or same logic, total consumption would not exceed Available renewable supplies. Okay. This is what we've been working on for 10 years. Um, not just for water, but for carbon, solid waste, social impacts, uh, economic impacts, and so forth. And believe it or not, there is some discernible consensus now starting to take shape around um, how to do this. And uh, But I would say, in general, there are, um, well, I'm, I'll I'll say this in a, in a second. Let me just finish this. Whatever we do, it needs to be fair and proportionate. Uh, it needs to be reflective of other parties who rely on the same capitals for their well-being. So we can't just allocate all of the available water for us. We have to leave some for everybody else. It's fair and proportionate to them, too. Um, it also needs to be reflective of other parties who may be co-responsible for the same capitals. So for uh, impacts on natural capitals that we don't own, you know, that are sort of part of the commons and that uh, uh, others rely on, um, we need to, we don't want to take uh, exclusive responsibility for their preservation or maintenance, only our fair and proportionate share. And we expect others to do the same. Uh, otherwise, nobody would do this. Uh, 
and, uh, and if there are any already existing standards of performance, if any, um, they need to be taken into account as well. But I will just tell you uh, quickly that the, uh, there's sort of three ways to do this that have um, kind of emerged. Um, one is to make allocations in cases where we have something like water where we're trying to make a fair and proportionate allocation to an individual user is to do so in a way that corresponds to their uh, contribution to society. That might be their contribution to GDP. It might be their contribution to whatever they're, whatever they're doing for a living. It might be their contribution to the food supply, if they're a food producer, um, to, to somehow uh, uh, make those allocations in a way that is consistent with their uh, contribution to society. That's one way. Another way to do it is to do it in a way that's proportionate to their size in terms of their uh, headcount, their um, the, the size of the workforce, the number of people working in that factory that is consuming water compared to the total number of people who live in the, in the watershed, for example. Um, a third way to do it is, uh, well, it's, it's one of the examples I gave for the first way. It, it's to look at their, uh, the, the, the contribution they're making in terms of their product or service relative to uh, uh, the sort of total size of their sector, if you like. That's a little more challenging. The, the per capita or workforce size is for most organizations is not as um, satisfying. Most organizations would rather be rewarded for the uh, sort of social contributions they're making, including their uh, economic contributions. And so I think this is why, for the most part, where these allocation schemes are, are being used, most of them are gravitating towards the economic contribution, contribution <coughs> Yeah. Do you recommend that when you work with a company that they select one and it's applied across the whole school park? No. Um, yeah, multiple. Yeah, it's the, the decision can be different for different areas of impact. Uh, and, um, and for some of them, don't forget that the, there is no allocation issue in the first place. Um, if we're talking about something like paying a livable wage, you're solely responsible for that. Nobody else is. So there's there's no burden to allocate there with anybody else as the organization or the employer. That is solely your responsibility. It's only when we get into these shared areas of impacts, uh, usually in the environmental side of things where this stuff comes into play. Um, the, the new greenhouse gas protocol target setting uh, methodology that was just published yesterday for public comment, it takes a sector-by-sector sector approach. And if you go to the page where they're doing the allocation, uh, that's a, there's a, it's a context-based methodology that they're promoting. You'll see that the allocation uh, mechanism they use actually varies by sector as well. For some, it's contribution to GDP. For others, it's you know, how many of all the widgets in the world are you producing versus everybody else? And then they, they correlate uh, 
emissions reductions burdens to different companies in different sectors according to those different allocation mechanisms. This is great, and I definitely understand how you got to start somewhere. But that one where you're using GDP, for example, as the allocation yeah. method, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's obviously sets a starting point of history that, you know, wasn't, it, it may not have made sense to get you to your place at the table right now, you know, because your contribution is at profit versus revenue, but, but either way, you know, the allocation of that right now may not really make sense for the future. So, mm -hmm. so I have a lot of problems with it, even though I do understand it's maybe the most pragmatic. Well, with that one, uh, it's not like we, with that one, we revisit that calculation at least annually. Right. So if your contribution to GDP plummets, so does your allocation of water under that methodology. And the same thing happens with, uh, with greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, okay, so um, this is the allocation issue in context-based sustainability. And it's interesting to see that word now being used in the greenhouse gas protocol that was just released this week, target setting. Um, I think it's, like I said, the kind of consensus, first of all, recognizing this issue and then kind of coalescing around two or three ways of, of doing it. Bob Willard um, prefers the per capita method. And so- Ecological footprints per capita. That's right, theirs is essentially a per capita uh, method as well. Um, okay, this is just, this is a slide taken from, this is kind of a summary slide, I won't dwell on this. This is a screenshot taken from the Center for Sustainable Organizations website. If you need a place to uh, go to refresh your memory on what are the elements of sustainability context uh, that we've been talking about, this is a, another place to go. The Center for Sustainable Organizations website is a good place for lots of uh, presentations and articles on context-based sustainability. And now so is the multicapitalscorecard.com website. Okay, uh, in sum, standards of performance are expressed in terms of fair and proportionate organization-specific allocations of capital, resources, or responsibilities to preserve, produce, or maintain them. They're determined by reference to sustainability context. That's why it's called context-based sustainability, where knowledge of thresholds and then the allocations we make of them uh, give rise to organization or company-specific standards of performance for each area of impact. A standard of performance for water, greenhouse gas emissions, or whatever. Whatever you have identified as material. Okay, uh, let me just quickly do the context-based metrics piece and then we can take a break. Sound good? All right. Um, as I mentioned, different doctrines come with different approaches to measurement. Context-based metrics, as it should be clear <laughs> by now, are shot through with uh, capital-based uh, principles. They're threshold-based, uh, relating to carrying capacities of capitals. They're normative in the sense that 
they don't just measure impact, they compare the impact uh, with a standard of performance for what the impact would have to be to be sustainable. So if there's a threshold for water use in context-based metrics, we measure how much water you actually consume, and then we can compare it to the threshold. And that gives us the ability to draw meaningful conclusions about sustainability performance. This is what context-based metrics look like. Um, so this is a general specification. And you can compare this in your minds to, say, what you may already know about conventional metrics, like absolute metrics or relative metrics. But here's where that comparison I just referred to is taking place. We, the, the metrics take the form of quotients with a numerator and a denominator. The denominator is where the standards of performance that we just discussed go. So once we've made the threshold and allocation determination, if we're talking about water, for example, this context-based water metric would say 10 million gallons. That's your standard of performance. Use no more than that. The numerator is your actual consumption. And then when we build metrics like this, we get scores that are greater than, equal to, or less than 1.0. So for impacts on natural capital, which we can't do anything about, we can't just make more water. Last time I checked, not yet anyway. Uh, all scores of less than or equal to one are sustainable, greater than, signified unsustainable. For impacts on all other capitals, the scoring convention reverses. And that's sort of uh, very consistent with that Oxfam donut diagram I showed you earlier. In some cases, it's not to exceed. In other cases, it's not to fall below. Okay, this is uh, now starting to tie in with what Jeff's going to be talking more about. Um, we're going we're, we're to make a distinction here. We are making a distinction between science-based, ethics-based, and context-based. And uh, you have our sympathies, but you're going to be hearing these terms used <laughs> repeatedly over the next uh, two, three days. So this is at least our attempt to uh, define them and we'll give you some hands-on experience with them before we're through. Science-based, these are, uh, we're talking about goals or metrics, okay? Goals for what future performance should be and metrics for measuring what that performance actually was. Grounded in the sciences, any of the sciences, but with no organization-specific allocations defined. Uh, or so they're context-based. So this might be something like, uh, you know, this could be an eco-efficiency metric of the sort we were talking about earlier, really, where, you know, it's some, um, we want to decrease our greenhouse gas emissions by X percent because the climate science tells us that's, that's what we need to do. But there's been no organization-specific allocation beyond that. And there really would have to be in order for that goal to be fair and proportionate and meet all of the other criteria for context-based. So context-based can be science-based, um, but it needs to also include the organization-specific allocation or standard of performance. Um, and much, if not most, of what passes for science-based metrics these days doesn't do that. It sounds like science, but it's sort of like, you know, 
I drove by the uh, MIT campus, and therefore I'm science-based. It takes a little more than that. Uh, Ethics-based uh, is very similar, except we're not talking about the sciences or you know, much less the sort of biophysical sciences. We're talking about principles of justice, fairness, or equity, like um, uh, a goal um, uh, a goal related to um, gender, what's the term I want? Um, parity. Gender parity in, in organizations, which might take you know, parity in terms of compensation, parity in terms of gender uh, mix on the board of directors, parity in terms of management, you know. Um, uh, but again, with not necessarily any specific allocations defined, or if so, if they are in there, then they also would be context-based. So we're going to give you some uh, hands-on experience looking at some real goals and metrics that uh, Jeff and Andrew have dug out of the uh, business literature to see if we can uh, make sense of what uh, what's out there. Two quick illustrations and then I'm done. We can go into our break. This is a um, this is a, this is actually the, the first context-based carbon metric uh, ever developed was in 2006. We did it at the Center for Sustainable Organizations and we worked with Ben and Jerry's to deploy it. And so Ben and Jerry's was a sort of willing guinea pig. And um, this just gives you a feel for, um, you know, the, the metric itself might actually take the form of a, uh, a spreadsheet, and um, embedded in that spreadsheet is the science, the relevant science. And so these graphs are taken from the climate science. Uh, they're called climate change mitigation scenarios, and they essentially represent uh, patterns of emissions reductions that need to take place over time in order to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations uh, at safe levels and thereby reverse climate change. And so we simply have taken the, uh, the, the patterns of reductions uh, that, that have been uh, built into the science-based models, um, baked them into our organization specific metrics, then done the allocation thing, uh, and then what we end up with is a context-based carbon metric. And uh, Ben and Jerry's uh, was the first to do that with us. This is actually a screenshot from one of their uh, online reports uh, several years ago. Did you go further to product with them? So that you could say what, which ice creams were the ones that got their shares? We, we, didn't, we didn't do that. Yeah, okay. uh, but uh, one could do that. Uh, and it seems to me, uh, yeah, you would have to, you know, in effect, apportion both the numerator and the denominator to specific products to, to do a meaningful job of that. Okay, finally, uh, here's, here's an example of the context-based water metric that we've been using for several years now. Very successfully, we use this metric at hundreds of sites uh, for businesses in the US. And again, it's a spreadsheet, uh, but we're also using, in this case, GIS tools uh, that make it possible for us to uh, 
quantify precipitation levels by watershed populations, um, GDP by watershed. Um, there's all sorts of really uh, cool stuff out there. And then we do our allocations uh, either by, uh, yeah, you can see in many cases we're doing it more than one way. Here's per capita and here's economic, because sometimes we want to see what results look like from more than one perspective. All right, so what I want to do, what I want to do last before handing off to Jeff is um, give you a kind of preview of the multi-capital scorecard. Uh, the, the main story behind this is that uh, up until very recently, context-based sustainability was pretty much exclusively about impacts uh, on the non-financial capitals. Okay, it was sort of a, uh, motiv motivated by a, a desire to do a better job of assessing the social and environmental sustainability performance of organizations, because that really wasn't being done. Um, the multi-capital scorecard was inspired by a desire to take the sort of next step, if you will, and uh, in some ways, um, at least what I think of or thought of as the, the holy grail, is to really do this in the way where we operationalize the triple bottom line in all of its dimensions under an integrated uh, methodology, a context-based integrated uh, methodology that is comprehensive. So I got together with a guy named uh, Martin Thomas, who had all of the credentials that I don't have. He's an ex-finance exec from Unilever. And uh, so world-class finance uh, guy who totally um, understood and uh, uh, supported context-based sustainability, but <clears throat> was anxious uh, more than I was to uh, extend it into the financial arena and, and really sort of recast uh, context-based sustainability so that it can be used across the, the entire uh, triple bottom line. So that's what we did. Um, and for the past three years, we've been working on that. We rolled it out in uh, late 2013. We uh, very quickly got uh, a pilot going at Ben & Jerry's, uh, which you'll hear more about tomorrow morning in the plenary that Rob Mahalik and I do together. So what is this thing? Uh, a new and structured and more full, fully elaborated implementation of CBS. Uh, it goes beyond the original focus of CBS, which was pretty much confined to social and environmental, um, and addresses uh, context-based financial management as well. Because when you think about it, um, one of the uh, sort of main differences between measuring and reporting financial performance versus measuring and reporting non-financial performance is simply the identity of the capitals involved. They are both context uh, uh, capital-based. So in the case of uh, 
context-based sustainability up to this point, as I mentioned earlier, we've been focusing on natural capital, human capital, social capital, and constructive capital. Uh, and this is oversimplifying it, but all we really had to do to extend context-based thinking into the financial space was to add economic capital, economic capitals to the list, and then see if we could apply the same principles uh, to that as well. Um, but we, we think we have, and uh, in the process, uh, have produced the first context-based integrated method, um, and also have done a better job than uh, we have thus far of sort of rendering all of this in a kind of a, uh, a structured methodology that uh, corporate sustainability managers can use in a kind of a stepwise fashion. What does TBL mean? Triple bottom line. Oh, okay, thank you. Yep. Um, so the codification, we're in the process of documenting that, takes the form of work steps and the methodology. And we're also, this is something we hadn't done before, also uh, producing a, a, a set of standardized reports. So one report, for example, I'm going to show you in a second, is a multi-capital scorecard, <laughs> um, the namesake. Uh, but there are other, other reports that would be sort of standard part of the methodology. Um, the cycle that we follow uh, is consistent with the cycle that was um, earlier developed for context-based sustainability. We called it the CSM, Corporate Sustainability Management Cycle. It looks something like this. There's a policy side and then there's an operational side, but you'll recognize uh, the steps here. Very early in the process, we we try to be as clear as we can about who our stakeholders are. Um, we then uh, go about the process of defining organization-specific standards of performance you know, that reflect the vital capitals that we're having impact on, the thresholds and allocations uh, of those capitals uh, in organization-specific ways. Um, and then we have a measurement step and, and where we find gaps in our performance. Um, we can devise strategies and interventions intended to close those gaps and improve performance. We implement those strategies and interventions. Then we come back and measure again to see how well we did. So this is sort of very kind of classic gap analysis uh, logic uh, applied in this case to uh, sustainability management. Um, but we're also adding the, you know, the context-based uh, piece um, on the front end. And then, in principle, we would sort of follow this cycle, um, you know, on a recurring basis, uh, and drop back to this cycle only when we need to. Uh, if some new stakeholder group pops up, or some new standard of performance is suggested, some new science that we think we ought to take into, into account, maybe we need to um, reformulate our context-based metrics, whatever. This cycle, by the way, the, the reason this is up here, <laughs> this book is the only book-length treatment of context-based sustainability. And it was designed for practitioners. So this cycle and uh, the explanation of what the steps are and context-based metrics and 
how to formulate metrics uh, is all described in that book. Uh, it's had to be written by myself and a, a guy named Yo Van England in the Netherlands where I did my PhD years ago. Okay, uh, you've seen this before, right? So in the uh, case of the multi-capital scorecard, we would use the same kind of tool. In other words, we go through the materiality determination process just like we would in any other implementation of, of CDS. And what we then might come out with is something like this, uh, a simple report that would say, um, well, here in fact are the stakeholders that we've identified that are uh, relevant to us, to our organization employees, you know, shareholders, lenders, and so forth. And we've also correlated them to the, um, the various bottom lines, uh, which is why in some cases, uh, I'm trying to think, the, in some cases the same uh, stakeholders show up uh, more than once uh, because the, uh, the type of capital that we're impacting could be uh, multiple, multiple types, which would suggest that they, that those impacts and those uh, stakeholders be correlated with more than one bottom line. So in this example, this is, this is a purely hypothetical list. This is just an illustration. Uh, because in principle, the application of this methodology and context-based sustainability uh, in general is that we assume that the, there will be differences, that the context is always different for different organizations, different stakeholder groups. They're in completely different businesses, different sectors, different kinds of operations. They impact different kinds of, of vital capitals. They're in different places, on and on. All of that then leads to uh, uh, high probability that the organization-specific standards of performance for sustainability will be different and need to be uh, thought of and approached that way. So this is just a, an illustrative example. You can see the areas of impact, living wage, workplace safety, innovative capacity, might be an organizational learning uh, kind of um, uh, issue, equity, equity capital on the part of uh, shareholders. Now you can see where the, the financial uh, piece is starting to come into play. What are the lows and parentheses? They're, that's a abbreviation for the, the capitals. So for living wage at the top, the human. corresponding human. capital is human. Okay, all right. I, I thought it was, but thank you. Yeah, and these are like equity is internal economic. Uh, borrowings is internal economic. Uh, competitive practices, external economic. Thank you. Yeah. So there's a story behind every one of those. Um, you said an innovative capacity would be like training development. It could be, or it could be uh, an organization that maybe has, um, uh, well, in this example, we've cited universities. It may be in partnership with a university that's providing funding for the organization to do a certain kind of R&D. Uh, and so the organization, uh, therefore, in turn, owes a 
the duty of, of uh, performance uh, to uh, its outside uh, partner to uh, maintain uh, a, a level of internal innovative capacity uh, of some kind. So that's a, a, a very sort of specific example that would be uh, relevant in the case only for organizations that have stakeholders in relationship or relationship of that kind. All right. Um, so this is, um, any of you who are familiar with uh, financial reporting, this is almost like uh, developing your chart of accounts um, as an early step in your uh, accounting process. Um, you know, what are the relevant accounts that we're then going to want to go on and uh, focus on for uh, performance measurement and reporting purposes? Well, there they are. Now this is what a, um, uh, an, an abridged uh, multi-capital report might look like. Uh, here are the same uh, purely illustrative hypothetical areas of impact that we identified earlier. Now we've mapped them into a scorecard format. And we've again maintained their association with the three bottom lines. But now we're starting to populate the scorecard with scores, hypothetical scores in this case. First thing we do is we define what a fully sustainable score would be. Um, and so this, this, these numbers uh, correlate to the thresholds and allocations that we earlier discussed. And you know, without getting into the units of measurement, say and then we're we're uh, reporting uh, at the same time actual performance uh, and that gives us the you know actual over normative and gives us the, the quantitative basis for uh, reporting uh, performance against sustainability standards of performance then we're able to aggregate uh, scores uh, by triple bottom line as well as on an overall basis. Now, when you say the weighted score, so who sets the weights? Uh, the company does. Um, in this method, they're given a, a, a budget of weights to allocate across all of their areas of impact with rules for uh, how to do the allocations of weights uh, so that um, you know, we're, we're not, uh, we don't get a case where all of the weights goes to financial performance. And then um, what you don't see in this, this representation is um, the, um, the, the, the specific underlying thresholds and allocations. What you're seeing here instead are scores that essentially are comparing um, performance to a standard of achieving the threshold or achieving the sustainability norm. And depending on if, you, if you've met or exceeded that score, you get, if you've met or exceeded the threshold, you get a high score. If you are falling short of that, you get a lower score. If you're making progress towards it, you get a higher score. Um, 
if you have you know multiple years, consecutive years of, of poor performance where you're falling away from the uh, the sustainability threshold, you get an even lower score. So all of that is uh, uh, you don't see that in this particular representation, but it underlies the the numerical uh, examples that you're seeing here. So this is a environmentally sustainable score compared with an unsustainable social economic score. Well, uh, what this is telling us is that this fictitious organization is unsustainable across all three bottom lines. 